Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. This is a story, to be honest with you, I don't remember the first time I ever heard it. <laughs> Very familiar text, familiar story. I remember as a very young child singing a song about Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And climbed, I don't remember all the words now, but something about climbed up in the sycamore tree because he wanted the Lord to see. So it's a text that I think we all come to with, with some measure of familiarity, and that's okay. It's good to know such stories. And it's certainly one that I, I trust I think my children know. I think they sing songs about it too, to some degree. I want to think about this text this morning, and first of all, in the context of where we've been leading up to here. Uh, we're not going to, of course, look at the whole book of Luke as we've progressed through Luke's gospel here. But the previous text that we have considered in recent weeks, last Sunday, uh, we looked at the story of, of blind Bartimaeus who receives sight as Jesus comes approaching Jerusalem. And even prior to that, we had the account of the rich young ruler all the way back in verse number 18 of chapter 18. And we considered to some degree last week when we, we spoke about Bartimaeus something of the contrast that was quite visible between this rich young ruler and this poor blind beggar Bartimaeus. You know, on the one hand, here was the rich young ruler, a man of great wealth, and the end of the story is he was unwilling to comply with Jesus' demands to go to sell all that you have, give the money to the poor and come follow me. And as he reasoned through his mind, as we said last week and even the weeks that we looked at the rich young ruler, in his mind he could not make that exchange because in his mind, his mind that's a sacrifice far outweighed the gains. So he would not make such an exchange. And then we saw last week Bartimaeus, here one of great poverty. One who would be glad to part with a miserable existence. One who would gladly part ways with a life of, of pain and begging and shame if only Jesus will help. And one who comes crying to Jesus and in fact is helped. One who is, not only receives his sight, but experiences a transformation of heart. So we had on the one hand the rich young ruler and from that, from that story we had brought to our minds as, as this rich young ruler walked away. From Jesus and Jesus words were how difficult it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. That's been thrust before us. We know the difficulty of someone who has great possessions, great wealth. He has blessed with much of worldly goods. The difficulty there is of that man being saved. Verse 24 of chapter 18. And also, in contrast to that, the willingness of the desperately poor to cry out for mercy and to receive God's mercy in verse 38, which we saw in Bartimaeus. But what we have not yet seen in this context, what has not happened yet is a rich man converted. We've seen a rich man walk away. 
And we've seen a poor man converted. But we've not seen a rich man yet come to Christ in the immediate context here. And we have to think, when thinking about that, I mean, Jesus has already said that for a rich man to come into the kingdom of God, that it is more difficult than a camel going through the eye of a needle. In other words, it is impossible. But Jesus also says in verse 27 that things that are impossible with people or things that are impossible with men are possible with God. So does He do it? Does He do this impossible thing? Does He bring rich men into His kingdom? Well, let's read in our text here. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and he came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, I think it becomes pretty clear in reading our text that the key to understanding, the key to considering this particular text is is what's presented to us in verse 10. When Jesus says the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So that if we are to consider our text here rightly, then we come to the conclusion very quickly that the text is first and foremost, the text is primarily about Jesus Christ. It is primarily about this one, the Son of Man, coming to seek and to save that which was lost. So in some measure, Zacchaeus is somewhat, somewhat incidental. That it's a, it's a Christ-centered story, not a Zacchaeus-focused nor centered story. And we see the words there in verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It puts in our minds, at least it rightly should, this imagery of a, of a shepherd who is in pursuit. He is one who goes seeking and saving his lost sheep. That's the picture that would be conveyed 
in the hearer's minds of Jesus' day, seeking and saving. It's a shepherd. He knows that when his sheep have been separated from the flock, he must seek after them to save them. It's an imagery that's quite familiar throughout the Old Testament as well, isn't it? Throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, we can find many references to this sheep and shepherd imagery. One or the other, and sometimes we find both. Back in Psalm 23.1, we don't have to turn there, do we? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And so with that, the concession, I am a sheep. Psalm 78, verse 52 but he led, speaking here of God, he led forth his own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Then Psalm 79, verse 13. So we, your people and the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. And those same words, almost identical there in in Psalm 100, where there he speaks of, we are, we are his sheep, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Again, in, in Psalm 95, verse 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. In Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Jeremiah chapter 50, just for one more final Old Testament reference. Jeremiah 50, beginning in the first part of verse 6. My people had become lost sheep. So we have this common imagery throughout the Old Testament, which is part of the reason as Jesus speaks these words of, of the Son of Man coming to seek and to save, they would have understood, they would have clicked. There is a picture here of a shepherd and of a sheep. But this same imagery is carried also, of course, into the New Testament. Turn with me very quick to Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus was ministering. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Jesus, seeing the people, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then in Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, when Jesus is sending out His twelve disciples on their mission in verse 5, He says, Do not go to the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans. But verse 6, notice what He says, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the same, the same wording used in Matthew chapter 15 Verse 24. And then in Luke chapter 15. A text that we dealt with some weeks or months ago. Jesus gives a parable there of the lost sheep. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one who is lost until he finds it. When he is found, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then, you know, what's the comparison that he makes? Verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So this imagery of sheep and shepherd, one that 
quite familiar to us throughout the but throughout the scripture. Also important that we remember this that we use the sheep imagery. When God refers to us as sheep, it's not a very flattering picture. It's not a, it's not good. Because sheep are notorious for their tendency to become lost. Sheep are notorious for their, they will use this word, stupidity. Sheep are notorious for wandering from their shepherd. It's not flattering. It's not pretty. But on the other hand, the imagery of the shepherd, the picture of the shepherd is a beautiful portrayal of the care and the concern that Christ has, that God has for His people, the provision that a good shepherd makes for His sheep. So this morning, as we look at our text here, of course, we're going to have to deal with it from the standpoint of remembering that we are, we are like those lost sheep. And to marvel in the seeking and the saving work of Jesus Christ. To marvel at what Jesus does and to marvel at the the realities that we see here in the life of Zacchaeus and in his encounter with Jesus. But likewise, to see in the present day how we can marvel in those same realities as they are true for us. First of all, we see here the reality that we might marvel in, first of all, his very presence. Note here just the very simple words of Jesus in verse 10, the first part of that phrase. For the Son of Man has come. The Son of Man has come. Here He is, a shepherd pursuing His sheep. Now, when we think about that in human terms, we think about a a real-life human shepherd and a real-life herd. Is a herd of sheep? Flock of sheep, gaggle, nice goose, <laughs> but a large group of sheep, <laughs> a bunch. <laughs> you know, we think of that in our terms, the reality of uh, the human related to the to the sheep. And it's, it's understandable to some degree that a shepherd goes after his sheep, isn't it? I mean, it makes sense. If it doesn't have any concern, which the picture of the shepherd of the Scripture is, that he's the shepherd who cares for his sheep, he's concerned for his sheep, he knows the needs of his sheep, so he's willing to do what is necessary to keep them well and safe. But if for no other reason, it's of great economic concern. You start having sheep go on and off and disappearing. After a while, you have, you have nothing. And so it would be expected that, you, that the shepherd would go out and to begin to pursue those sheep. We understand that. On a human level, don't we? But when we think of this great shepherd, we think of Jesus Christ coming for his sheep. That's a much greater truth, isn't it? Because when Jesus comes for his sheep, he doesn't go from one geographical location to another. He descends from heaven to earth. So to read the words here, the Son of Man has come. There's a, there's a ton of amazing reality and truth in that statement, isn't there? 
The Son of Man has come. The Son of Man has come from heaven. The Son of Man has come and He is God in the flesh. God becoming man. Jesus who is both God and man. You know, the Scriptures give to us in such, the New Testaments in particular, give to us such a Vivid description of what transpired when Jesus came. John, John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. They're speaking of course of Christ. And the Word was with Christ. And the Word, I'm sorry, the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then in verse 14, where does he go? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, That He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. This is this Jesus who has come. And so we read here the words, of Jesus, and he says, For the Son of Man has come. Boy, there's much to be weighed upon there, isn't there? That Jesus was God. That when Jesus came, God came. And what a marvelous truth that it is to us to begin to think about that. Scripture proclaims an unparalleled and a marvelous message about, about God. Coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, salvation for men is not accomplished by a mere divine decree. Let men be saved and it be so. It's not how He saves, is it? God doesn't just merely, as an act of His will, save men. God saves by sending His Son. God's salvation is by Jesus coming. By His presence here among people to walk among us in flesh and blood to become one of us. And to see here in the text that Jesus comes not only from heaven to earth, but He comes here to Jericho. Verse 1, He entered Jericho and was passing through and he comes to a particular place to a particular person here in Jericho in verse 5 when Jesus came to the place what place was that the place where Zacchaeus was there's Zacchaeus up in the tree he came to the place and he looked and he said to him Zacchaeus hurry and come down for today I must stay in your house and most importantly, we did not lose sight of the fact in the larger context of Luke here, as Jesus here is incidentally passing through Jericho. Passing through according to verse 1. That He is also coming to a more important place, isn't He? He's coming to Jerusalem. He has not come just from heaven to earth. But He has come to earth to go to the place called Jerusalem. He is coming to Jerusalem and there that makes all of His other comings meaningful. 
if Jesus Christ comes merely to earth, but it does not go to Jerusalem, we have no salvation. If Jesus Christ comes to Jericho and he does not go to Jerusalem, there is no salvation for Zacchaeus. So he comes to these places. He comes to the earth. He comes to Jericho and he reaches out. He, he looks for those lost sheep. And he comes to Jerusalem there to experience the very wrath of God the Father because of the sins of his people laid upon him. There's the significant coming of Jesus Christ. There's an old Southern Baptist pastor. He's gone to be with the Lord now. His name was Vance Habner. And I heard a cassette recording of a message on one occasion by Vance Habner. And the title of the message was, Look Who's Here. And throughout this message, he would go through stories in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I won't relate all that to you. I'm not going to preach his sermon to you. But just a couple of things that did come to mind as, as I just remembered that sermon was the account of the of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego as they were cast into the fiery furnace and their, their fusions of bow before the, the false god and their, they received their due reward because of their disobedience to the king. And they're cast into the fiery furnace and here comes King Nebuchadnezzar and he looks into the fiery furnace and, and, and Vance Havner is only the dear older saint of God can say. So he looks in and there's, he sees there's three are in there but he says, but look who's here. <laughs> there's someone else in there. Reincarnate Christ there with them. And he spoke of the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 when there's this vast multitude of people that need to be fed. And Jesus says, well, to his disciples, you feed them. And, and their response is, well, we don't have any way to feed this. How can we possibly feed this many, this many people? And, you know, again, Vance Hamden says, look who's here. <laughs> it's Jesus. I think we need to have something of the marvel restored in our minds and have that truth impressed in our hearts to look who's here. Look who's here. God has come. God has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how quickly that which is ought to be marvelous in our hearts becomes something that is rather mundane. I mean, so the fact of the matter is we know these truths so well that we fail to ever stop and to really weigh them, don't we? You know what it is to, to take a thought and to meditate on it and to dwell upon it and to feed upon it and to have that thought to capture your hearts once again. Let me ask you, how long has it been since you, since you so allowed the thoughts of Jesus Christ, God Himself coming into this human race as He came to accomplish what He did so much so that you were moved to worship and to praise and to glory, moved to tears how long has it been? You know, occasionally uh, Beth will look at me and she'll say, what are you thinking? And the reason she says that because I've got probably a smile on my face and, and I'm not saying anything. And, and sometimes I don't even know where I'm smiling. It might be something very small smile, you know, just a little glimmer of a smile. But Beth sees it. What are you thinking about? And, well, I'm thinking about something that makes me happy or something that brings a, a funny memory. You know, it's, a, it's to, to allow that memory to have such a place that, 
that it begins to influence my emotions. And how, how infrequently we stop and allow the wonderful truths, the very basics of the Christian gospel to so capture our thoughts that our emotions are moved. That we can think of the reality that Jesus Christ, God Himself has come and it's something more than a passing notion. Let's get on with the next story. See, it's such wonderful truths. How long has it been since we marveled at Jesus' presence on earth, His entry of the human race? How long has it been since we, we have marveled at His willful coming to Jerusalem, of His taking upon Himself the cross at Calvary to bear my sin and the wrath of God? How long has it been since those have been marvelous truths in your hearts? I dare say you've spoken of them recently. I, I dare say a week doesn't go by that in the context of our homes that we don't mention in some form or fashion that Jesus came to die for our sins. And it's like in and out. To marvel at the reality of Christ's presence. To marvel that these words of Jesus, the Son of Man, has come. He's come. To marvel that He has come to your heart. To come to your home. To dwell with you. What a marvelous truth this is. And yet, one that's lost something of its freshness to our hearts. We need to recapture those things. We, don't we need to recapture something of the, of the joy, of the wonder, of the very basic things of, of Christian truth? And what's more basic than that? Than that God has come in Jesus Christ. What's more basic than that? We also can marvel at His purpose. You know, if Jesus hadn't said this, and we'd been pressed to say, what was the purpose of Jesus' coming? I wonder what our answer would have been. Or if Jesus hadn't said this, and we just begin to think theologically, you know, why would, why would God come? For what purpose would God come and live among men? You know, I could think of possible other purposes for Jesus to come, for God to come in human flesh. I could think that God could come and dwell among us to, to live as a man ought to live and to restore the honor of God. This is what a God-honoring life looks, at, looks like. I could understand that He could come with the purpose of 
He is going to execute justice. And there was a large degree of expectation of that in Jesus' day, was there not? The expectation that the Messiah, when He would come, He was going to come and execute judgment upon all the enemies of God. And in their thinking, Rome and the Gentiles. Could think that Jesus, that God could come and dwell among men for something like that. But Jesus gives us here in His statement here, the why and the purpose of His coming when He says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In other words, Jesus comes with a very clear agenda. Jesus has not come just to to see how things are going. He's not come to earth on a tourist visa. He's come with a clear purpose. He's come to seek and to save that which is lost. He is aware of lostness of His sheep. He is aware that there are those outside the fold, even more aware than the sheep themselves. Aren't you glad that God didn't wait until you woke up to your need before He began to work in your heart? So well, I did wake up. Yes, you did. That was the initiative of God in your heart. That was the first thing you did. Aware of the lostness. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What's conveyed here by this word lost? It's more than just a losing of one's bearings. If you've ever been lost have you ever been really lost I've been in situations where I have lost a sense of direction when I was in, in St. Louis I think I may have shared on one occasion I learned one lesson I was in seminary I, you didn't get on the interstate was right by the seminary campus we lived on campus there and I realized very soon there were certain times of the day you do not get on the interstate because you'll sit there in your car and you won't go anywhere and so there was one occasion when I had to be south of St. Louis to lead music at a church kind of revival thing. And so I had to be south of St. Louis. It was rush hour of madness. I could see the interstate from going under. I said, well, I don't need to get on that. So I took another road. Well, the second lesson I learned was this. If you're not going to get on the interstate, make sure you know where that second road is going to take you. <laughs> I did finally get there, but I was about 20 minutes late after being through parts of St. Louis I'd never seen before. But being lost here in the scriptural sense is more than a sense of losing bearings and losing direction. It has the idea of being destroyed. Because a lost sheep, it's not just a matter that he is out of the fold. A lost sheep, the eventual expectation is, unless his shepherd finds him and restores him, he is as good as dead. He is destroyed. He will perish. He will be ruined. That's what happens. And so when it speaks of lostness here, speaks of the lost sheep, it's not just one wandering around and where he's going, but it is one that is that is that is dangerously close to destruction. And so the shepherd goes out and to, to deliver him from that which even the sheep is oblivious to. He's aware here of the necessity to seek and to save those which are lost because they cannot save themselves. 
That's the work of this shepherd. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost because they cannot do this work for themselves. They cannot find their way back. And in fact, the biblical picture is they're not looking for their way back. So there's this need of seeking and saving, pursuing those that are lost. The, the need of deliverance that they have that must come from outside themselves. Someone to reach to them and to save them externally. So what we have here as Jesus comes to Jericho <clears throat> is the practical outworking. This is the living out of the seeking and the saving work of Jesus. In other words, this is not just an accidental and just an incidental visit here. This is a deliberate passing through of verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through verse 4. He, Zacchaeus ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. It's more than just an incidental, coincidental happening here. We saw last week, as just on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, we saw there this blind man, Bartimaeus. A lost sheep recovered by Christ. And now we come to this text, Zacchaeus. A lost sheep recovered, restored by Christ. Christ coming, seeking, and to save that which was lost. Let me ask you. Where do you see the seeking of Zacchaeus here? All we have in Zacchaeus is at best, I think if we were to ask him a curiosity of things. But he found much more than he sought. We find here Jesus as the one seeking and saving that which was lost. He says there in verse 5 to him, He came to the place. The place. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must. I must. Stay at your house. What do you mean? I must. If you go through the Gospel of Luke, you'll find about five or six occasions where there are these must that Jesus states like this. What is this must? It is the must of a divine necessity in order to fulfill his purpose. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I have come as the shepherd to find my lost sheep. Zacchaeus, I have come for you. So I must today Come and stay at your house. And again, reminded that all this takes place, takes place in the context of Jesus journeying to Jerusalem to fulfill his ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of a sacrificial death, of a substitutionary death for the sins of his people. Certainly, we can say that Jesus' highest purpose 
in his coming would be to glorify God. But is it not a marvelous truth to our hearts that the work of glorifying God is accomplished through the saving of men? I'm glad that the that God has chosen not to be glorified by merely external things, by things in nature, by things in creation, by things that He may do in other places. But God chooses that He be glorified through the saving of men, through lost sheep being restored. And that Jesus, as committed as He was to doing the will of the Father, of glorifying His Father, of love for the Father, that love is expressed by a love for people. Because that's the means that God has ordained to glorify Himself. By loving sinners. By saving sinners. What a purpose. What a purpose that he would express. This is why I have come. I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. I've not come simply to restore honor to the name of God. I've not come simply to execute justice. I've come to seek and to save. I don't know about you, but I find such a, a gracious purpose. Something to marvel at. God's purpose to bring glory to His name by seeking us. Nothing, nothing is added to God by His doing so. Is it? Does God become any greater because He seeks to glorify His name by saving men? Does God become greater because He saves lost sheep? Nothing is added to Him. Nor is anything taken from him if he should choose to save none. Because his justice could be marveled at through all of eternity and they'll all be cast into the eternal separation of hell away from God. It would be just. And God would be nonetheless God. And none could rise up and, and bring any charge against him. He gains nothing intrinsically by saving us. He loses nothing if He doesn't save us. So it gives us from that perspective an idea how gracious a purpose this is. To define His purpose in terms of saving us. And finally we see here His power. Jesus says in verse 9, Today, salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to this house. Deliverance has occurred. If His mission in coming is to seek and to save the lost, then here in Zacchaeus, we can say, Mission accomplished. He has come seeking and He has saved. Zacchaeus, now, he says there, he too is a son of Abraham. Now twice a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus, likely Jewish. Well, there's some debate about that. But more than likely, he was Jewish. 
But now he's the son of Abraham spiritually. The one that matters. This is the one that matters, Zacchaeus. A spiritual descendant of Abraham. Abraham, the father of faith. How does he bring this about? How do we see the display of his power in this work here of, of seeking and saving? We see the, the work of providence. The providential bringing together of Zacchaeus and Jesus in this place and in this time. Zacchaeus, again, if you were to ask him, what, would he say? what are you doing? Oh, I'm just curious. Curious about this man. So curious that he's willing to abandon any, any measure of dignity to climb up into a tree so that he might see him. Why such an intense curiosity? When Jesus comes to again in verse 5, comes to the place. Very specific word. Article's there. He came to the place. So what place was that? Well, obviously the place where Zacchaeus was. But we can also say it is the place of divine providence. The place of divine appointment. When Jesus Christ encounters this man, Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is simply looking at one who is going to be passing by, Jesus comes to the place and stops. Why there? Because that is the place. The place of divine providence. But what proof do we have here that Salvation has come. I mean, after all, Jesus has forewarned us. He has warned us that it is hard for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. That it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How do we know that salvation has taken place? Well, first of all, Jesus has declared it. That should be sufficient. Salvation has come. But we also see the fruit of this work. Verse 6. He hurried, Zacchaeus, he hurried and he came down and he what? He received Jesus gladly. Now there were those who received Jesus even into their homes. Some of the Pharisees, they received Jesus, but it was not gladly. They received him many times out of curiosity. They received him many times with the intent of trying to to trick him and to trap him, to, to ensnare him in his words. But here's Zacchaeus. He comes to Jesus, receiving him gladly. Jesus gladly welcomed only by a heart that has been changed. And note here also the evidence of conversion. That here, the one who would be the guest, Jesus, would be the guest. Is the one he's calling the shots. He's the host. Zacchaeus, you come down. I must go to be your guest. Christ being the Lord. Christ being Lord. We see the fruit of repentance there in verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and he said, because there were those who were grumbling, saying, look what Jesus has done. He's gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Thank the Lord for that. Thank the Lord for that. That's who he's come for. I've come to seek and to save men like this. Men that the world will look at and say, there's no hope for him. 
This man, this tax collector, he is a traitor. He has betrayed us to the nation of Rome, collecting taxes for Rome. He is a thief, notorious for, for taking more than they ought to take and filling their pockets with whatever extra they could. That was the, the mentality of the tax collector that day. So the world looks on, and in Jesus' day, look at that. There's no hope for something like this. This man is a bona fide sinner. There's no hope of heaven for him. And Jesus says of him, salvation has come to his house, to this house. Look what happens. Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, and some make issue of that word if. The word if here does not mean if perhaps. No, he, this is a confession. This is an acknowledgement on his part. This is in fact the case. I have defrauded. This is a genuine repentance. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. So he gives to the poor half of his possessions. And he makes a fourfold return upon what would have been dishonest gain. What's he doing here? He has seen his sin and he has painted his sin in as bad a light as possible. In the Old Testament, there were laws for making restitution. The Old Testament law requirement was in cases of extortion where you cheat someone out of something in exchange, that you were supposed to return and add one-fifth in return for that. That's in Leviticus chapter 6. If you were guilty of the crime of theft, and they're actually in the book of in Ezekiel chapter 22, there the reference is made, if you steal an oxen or if you steal a sheep, that you're supposed on that account to make a four or a five-fold restitution. So what do we see here? We see here that Zacchaeus is portraying himself as I've done no better than a common thief who has stolen a sheep or a cow, which certainly representative of, of essentials of life. I'm no better than a common thief. And so I will restore a four and a five-fold, a four-fold repayment to those whom I've defrauded. So Jesus comes to seek and to save that which lost. And the marvelous thing is, He does it, doesn't He? He saves. He finds them. He doesn't just have this, this intent of I'm going to go out on a journey and, and hope I find some, some sheep and try to help them and save them. No. This is a powerful, powerful Savior. And He goes forth in His power and His saving power seeking and saving those who are lost. And when it's all said and done, they're saved. That's the power of our Christ. He is not merely a potential Savior. He is not merely an offer of salvation to anyone who would have the sense enough to come to it. He is one who comes seeking and He saves. He brings them in to His fold. He's a powerful Savior. 
Salvation sovereignly secured and applied for all those for whom He has come. This is our Savior. That tax collector, he was an unsavable in, in Jesus' day. <laughs> and he was even unsavable in the very words of Jesus, wasn't he? If it's up to man. If salvation is dependent upon man, what's impossible with man? It's as impossible as a camel going through the eye of a needle. That's how possible it is for a rich man in and of himself to enter into the kingdom of God. But with God, all things are possible. The things that are impossible with man, possible with God. So Jesus... He always finds his lost sheep. And certainly we can marvel at the saving power of Christ in our own hearts, in our own lives, can we not? I don't know all of your stories. I don't know all of your histories. But I know this, if we were to go around the room, go around the room and take the time to say, what has God, what did God save you from? What were, the, what were the sins that marked your life? That probably what some would come out of the mouths of some of you would have others sit back in stunned silence. And we clearly understand that we are brought into the kingdom of God not by any goodness, any virtue, any power of our own. It is all of God. Salvation is of God. Able to rescue, able to deliver, able to save from all manner of sin. It makes no difference what your sin may be. He's able to save. Now we know some people, don't we? Don't you know of people that you think are unsavable? I do. I mean, I've got my little box. <laughs> you know, unsavable. <laughs> beyond, beyond hope. And that's when I have to be reminded that what's impossible with man is possible with God. That's when I have to be reminded He saved me. You want to know what God saved me from? Cover your ears. <laughs> God saved me from a life of growing up in a church. God saved me from a life of self-righteous religious activity. That's what God said. You want to know somebody that's hard to get saved? There's somebody that thinks they're already saved. I was, by my own definition, unstable because I could never have convinced me that I was lost. But there was a factor that came to work in my heart, and that factor is called the Spirit of God. And I knew that my 
religious activity, that my profession was nothing more than an external show. That it was skin deep. And that there was no transformation of heart. There was no love of Christ. There was no devotion to God. There was no delight in the Word of God. There was no true delight in the people of God unless we could get together and talk about basketball or football or something like that. And you can talk about that with anybody. That's what God saved me from. What a mess. What a mess He saved me from. You know, I can look back and I'm very thankful that He spared me from what we would look at and say those, those heinous sins, those scandalous sins. He spared me from that. I'm very thankful for that. I do not take that for granted. But I was a young man hell-bent on my way to hell. Right from the church pew until the Spirit of God changed my heart and converted me. And if you look back, those of you who are believers here this morning, if you look back and you see it as you ought to see it, you ought to you realize, boy, I was unsavable too. Some of you were saved from your morality. Some of you were saved from your, your wicked, vile sins. But some of you were saved from external churchianity. God's able to save someone like me. And I have every reason to look out with hope upon anyone I see. You know, God's able to save that person. He is. It's what He does. He comes to seek and to save that which are lost. That which is lost. So how marvelous is the seeking and saving power. Seeking the saving work of our Lord. He has come. How marvelous that is. He's come. The Son of Man has come. And in that coming there was a cross. There was a death. But there was a resurrection and there is life. Son of Man, He came to seek and to save. That was His purpose. He identified His coming with you and with me. I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. He does it. He's a powerful Savior. We who were once lost, ensnared by our sin, He saved. That's His power. That's the power of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that Jesus has come to seek and to save that which is lost. We have absolutely no clue of the measure of our lostness except you open our eyes. And then we have absolutely no power to do anything about it, except you deliver us. Lord, if there be any here today who need to be delivered, who need to be 
found. Lord, be merciful. Bring them into yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.